welcome to the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's Pharmacene podcast, our regular look at the world of pharmacy with guests from every sector and speciality. If you're a pharmacist, membership of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society will support your career, build your skills and represent your interests. Visit www.rfarms.com forward slash rps hyphen membership to find out more. And now on with our Pharmacene podcast. Hello and welcome to the Pharmacene podcast with myself, Parastu Donyai, as host. And I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming Ghaleb Khan, who is the founder and the CEO of Written Medicine. Welcome, Ghaleb. Thank you, Parastu. I hope you're well. And it's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. That's fantastic to have you, Ghaleb. Give us a brief introduction to yourself. I'm the founder and CEO of Written Medicine, and I'm also a fellow at the NHS Innovation Accelerator, which is based at UCLP, but funded by all the AHSNs, um, academic health science networks across the country, and also a clinical entrepreneur at NHS England as well. So I founded Written Medicine back in 2011 due to experiencing language and communication barriers working in community pharmacies in central London. But I've always had this idea that we need to improve the quality of information that we give to patients ever since I've experienced healthcare and receiving inhalers or medication when I used to go to India as a kid. So I used to get my medication, asthma inhalers, labelled over here in the UK that you know clearly said how I need to take my Ventolin inhalers. But when I went to India, there was no such mechanism and there still is no such mechanism. But whilst working in community pharmacies, especially in very diverse areas like central London, where we have a high footfall of tourists from Baker Street and Marble Arch who speak many European and Asian languages, but also the local population from the social housing area, our immediate areas like 60% black and ethnic minority, predominantly Kurdish, Arabic, Bengali, some Polish, Somali and Chinese speakers. And therefore, we hire in staff who reflect these local languages. And when I used to speak to patients who speak English as a second language, they would speak to me quite well, just like yourself, but they would write on the medication box how to take the medication in their own language once I've spoken to them. So it'd be like with food or once in the morning. So that's the reason why I created Written Medicine. It's fascinating to hear a little bit about your background in pharmacy. So how long have you been working in pharmacy then? So I started when I was 20 years old, back in 2003, I started working and it was a pharmacy that I've been, our family's been using before I was even born in Church Street, NW8. So you've got quite a lot of experience of working in pharmacy and you've told us about your own personal experiences that have, I suppose, shaped the way that you are and shaped the work that you've done. Is there anything else that has informed your work? I also have dyslexia and dyspraxia. My mum speaks English with a limited ability. Uh, my grandmother was deaf and mute and I've got a son with Down syndrome as well. So his main focus of needs are language and communications. He goes to a special needs school with those needs in focus. And whenever I go to his school, everything is in illustrations and pictograms. 
and really broken down for them to get a good understanding of what the day routine is going to be. You know, we're going to be doing maths in the morning and then football in the afternoon after lunch, what they're going to have for lunch as well. So it'd be all in illustrations. But once they leave that setting, what is there to help people with communication barriers in a healthcare setting? Can you tell us a little bit about written medicine? Written medicine is a software that we created initially looking at language barriers for ethnic minority patients who speak English as a second language. And that experience of patients writing in their own language on the medication box or on the medication label in their own language, whether it's Arabic or Turkish or Chinese, once they've spoken to us in English or once they've spoken to a bilingual staff member in their own language, that gave me an idea of why don't we create a pharmacy label that's dual language? We initially started with Arabic for the local pharmacies around Edgware Road. We then went to Ealing Hospital. So the next languages that we added were Bengali, Punjabi Gurumukhi, Polish and Gujarati. So then we've expanded into other NHS trusts and organisations. And we did an academic study of the product and then currently have 12 languages. And those languages are... Arabic, Bengali, English, French, Gujarati, Hindi, Polish, Punjabi, Romanian, Somali, Tamil and Urdu. And we'll be adding Czech, Slovak and Hungarian. And adding to those will be pictograms for people with learning disabilities. So we have roughly three and a half thousand directions of use phrases that you can combine together to make full, complete directions of use. Those illustrations will be linked to the directions of use and the warnings and indications to give people better understanding of the medication or how to take it. Fascinating. I think what you're describing there is a software that allows English instructions to be translated into one of the languages that you've developed and be placed on the label. It sounds like you're a bit of an entrepreneur, Ghalib. Can you tell me what the first steps were that you took? Obviously, you're talking about a a completed product that you've got now, but how did you start off? It can't have been easy. No, so it wasn't. We've been doing this since 2011, and we've spoken with several pharmacy and healthcare organisations in the beginning, including the MHRA, General Pharmaceutical Council, Royal Pharmaceutical Society. The MHRA straight away told us, a lady called Jan McDonald, who recently retired from there, she was very helpful and said, you know, there's nothing legally stopping you in doing this. But at the same time, there's no mandification that can mandate this piece of work like there is in America. So in America, there is a provision to provide bilingual labels as a mandatory function. And this happened back in August 2000, when Bill Clinton signed a presidential order requiring meaningful access for people with English as a second language. And these rules were enforced by the Office of Civil Rights and made it pharmacy specific. And so, for example, if they are providing a state funded or a federally funded pharmaceutical service, such as the morning after pill, then that has to be available in multiple languages. I see. So I think what you've described then is that you had a product and tried to see where that fitted in terms of UK law. But how did you come up with the product in the first place? Did you have to go off and learn software skills? How did you get your idea operationalized? As with many of my ideas, I was having a shower 
and thought of the idea, like, you know, why don't we just do bilingual labels? And I called my friend up, who's one of the co-founders, and he's a pharmacist and doing a PhD at Cambridge at the time. And I said to him, dude, look, I've had this idea of why don't we translate and print a pharmacy dispensing label? And initially, we just looked at the simplified directions of use, the standard ones that you have, take one tablet three times a day or once daily or at night and so forth. And that then expanded slowly into the three and a half thousand phrases that we have. We have some complete phrases like alendronic acid or malarone or loperamide. So these are very specific directions of use for those medications. Or we've got ones that you can just add together in blocks to make full phrases. And then wherever we spoke to pharmacists, people would say, okay, what indemnity do you have? Okay, we didn't know we required any. We went and got some. They said, what are your language translation processes involved? Do you use Google Translate and so forth? And we looked at, okay, can we use AI in this specific area and AI is still quite poor within this and I would suggest no one to use these in a clinical setting when we're providing crucial information there is 90% inaccuracies levels and so that then gave us an idea of creating a four-step process so we meet NHS England's guidance on translating and interpreting four times and we have a translator, proofreader, quality checker, and finally a pharmacist like yourself who is bilingual, literate in both languages. And then we give them a test environment. They test out the phrases and then they would tell us whether everything is OK or not. You know, one of the biggest barriers is finance and funding. So back in 2012, Uber was starting up, Deliveroo was starting up, and this gave a lot of organizations the idea of around, you know, grant funding businesses and stuff. So we went out and we made an application to Bethlehem Green Ventures. They gave us a small amount of funding. So initially it was five languages, the labels. We then expanded into A4 summary sheets. So people were like the labels, the bilingual labels may not be enough space to have a lot of the information on there because now you have two languages. You already have a finite amount of real estate on the label. So how do you get two languages on there? And so we then created a A4 summary sheet and that's then used at the point of discharge in hospitals or it can be used at the point of prescribing where the prescriber may feel the patient requires it, but the pharmacy at the end may not be providing the service. So it can be used at multiple places as well. And then after that, we've got a larger piece of funding from an organization called the Nominate Trust, which is now called the Social Tech Trust. And that helped us going further. But then we got our first customer, which was Ealing Hospital. Then after that, East London Foundation Trust. And then at Mary Evans Trust, um, Luton Dunstable, which is now Bedfordshire Hospitals. So your business is growing. Now, what would be your vision then? Well, I think what needs to happen is a better understanding in pharmacy of communication and language barriers that exist. Nine is the average reading age in the UK, and this affects people with all kinds of needs. And this includes age-related mental decline, learning disabilities, age-limited ability in English, low-limited literacy, special needs and sensory needs. These all add up to miscommunication. And a lot of these people come under the protected characteristics as well, which means we need to be making a reasonable adjustments in pharmacy for them, which doesn't happen. Now, a lot of these laws have been in place since 2010 or even before. But in pharmacy, apart from larger font labels, nothing else is available to help these patients be more adherent about the medication and taking it in a proper way.
That's good you mentioned adherence, because I was going to ask you whether you've done some research about how the labels then impact on patients. So we did an academic study with Portsmouth University and Helena Herrera. So she's um, one of the lecturers and researchers there. And it was funded by Health Education England, South London. And thanks to Ash Zoni as well in getting that funding for us. We did the project in 12 community pharmacies across London with 156 patients. So it's a baseline and follow-up questionnaire. And what we found was when we did a baseline without giving the bilingual label, just giving the English labels, 58% of the patients thought that they took the medicines properly. And then when we gave them a bilingual label, 62% of these patients discovered they'd been making mistakes after reading the instructions in their preferred language. And this could have been because these are patients who've had the condition for probably 5, 10 plus years. And they feel they understand how to take the medication, but they may have not realized the dose may have increased or decreased because they may be adhering or they not may not been reading the BNF warning, for example, and have been drinking alcohol with the medication when they shouldn't be or driving when they shouldn't be. 98% of the patients were able to read the information most of the time. And then adherence wise, 82% of the patients thought the information helped them take the medications as instructed. But more importantly, it increased patient independence and experience as well. So translated labels increased patient independence from 23% to 75% on relying on informal interpreters such as family, friends or bilingual staff in the pharmacy when they were only given English labels. And patient experience wise, 80% of the patients wanted this as a regular service and 66% it would influence their choice of pharmacy as well. Is there a plan to do further studies? We are working with a couple of AHSNs, including Wessex, Clare Howard Place, and then also Yorkshire and Humber AHSNs, who are happy to support us with further health economics. Obviously, there is a cost-benefit. A paediatrician contacted me from Gateshead Hospital. Syrian Arabic-speaking family, refugees who've been moved into that area. He had an interpreter physically with him in the consultation. They told them how to give the medication to the child. The family went to the pharmacy, picked up the medication, went home and gave an overdose. Luckily, the child didn't come to harm, but then that child ended up coming back into hospital via A&E, seeing the paediatrician and so forth. And just because providing a bilingual label wasn't available, that could have saved them from that happening. But this kind of thing happens in every single pharmacy in an area with a diverse ethnic minority population. We don't tend to speak to these communities that much to get an understanding. Of course, I think that's changed since COVID. There's been a bigger piece on health inequalities, which I think Royal Pharmaceutical Society is currently working on um, at the moment. But we need to engage with these marginalised communities who are happy to talk to us about the problems that they're having around their healthcare issues. And because they are keen to learn more about the medication they're taking, but that information is not always available. The medication information and healthcare information and education is mostly available in three languages around the world, English, French and Spanish. But only 18% of the world's population speak these as a first language. It's very sad to hear about the child and the accidental overdose. What you've said points to a need to maybe scope out the problem. It does appear to be a research need as well. 
If you're enjoying this episode of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's Pharmacine Podcast, don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about it. And remember, if you're a pharmacist, becoming a member of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society will support your career, build your skills and represent your interests. Visit www.rfarms.com forward slash RPS membership to find out more. Gullip, can I ask you, you've talked about cost-benefit analysis of providing these dual-language labels. Are there any risks to using the labels? If they are translated correctly and a thorough clinical safety case has been conducted, just like you create a drug, you'd go through the correct steps of the research and the clinical safety and you know the trials and all of these things. In such a way, we've also done our due diligence around the languages and how we've translated them and how they fit together, working with experts around those languages and a pharmacist, then there shouldn't be any worry in utilising them. There are some worries from pharmacists and rightfully so, because there is no guidance in pharmacy on how to reduce language and communication barriers in the UK. And there needs to be more guidance around this. And because of that, pharmacists or pharmacy staff can be hesitant in helping these patients in fear that if the software does does a mistranslation and they can't read what the translation's given, they feel the GPHC may come after them for a fitness practice, which is not the case. We've spoken to them and the GPHC have said, look, as long as the pharmacy has done their due diligence in making sure that we've created the software correctly, then there shouldn't really be a problem. That's good to have that explanation from you, Khaleb, because I think that would be one of the first thoughts that I would have, delegating that responsibility partly to yourself for creating a software that's trustworthy, but then the ultimate responsibility sitting with myself. And we know that pharmacy is, or has traditionally, dare I say, been seen as quite a risk-averse profession. Do you feel that there are other barriers? Sometimes pharmacy organisations don't realise that they are literally sitting on the data, and that includes the census data. Back in 2015, the Office of National Statistics that does the census and various other data collecting, including um, like the COVID-19 stuff like that, they came up with a paper that said language barriers for people equals poorer health. But also the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, you guys are based in Tower Hamlets, one of the most deprived boroughs in the UK, including London. 70% of the borough is ethnic minority. If we look at where the RPS is headquartered exactly in Tower Hamlets, it's in the ward of Whitechapel. You guys are surrounded by social housing and up to 80% of those blocks are homes to Bengali community. You also have the largest mosque in the country on your doorstep, East London Mosque. You have one of the largest and busiest acute centres, which is the Royal London. So, you know, there's a wealth of knowledge and health inequalities. And the Royal London does, you know, a lot of transplant medication. And actually, a lot of the patients that they deal with are ethnic minorities. And we know ethnic minorities are six times more likely to have long term conditions. That's another data that we know of already, like diabetes and cardiovascular diseases and stuff like that. And therefore, they're six times more likely to be on long-term medication, especially polymedication, where they're on five plus medications throughout their life. Yet those with language barriers are only 30% adherent to the medication. That means 70% of that medication is not being taken as it should, or probably ending up in landfill. Cultural taboos as well. 
sometimes breastfeeding, pregnancy, how to insert a pessary or apply a cream somewhere can be taboo topics. And those can be a bit uncomfortable regardless of the clinical setting or even if you're a pharmacist. Sometimes it can be a bit difficult explaining how to use a particular medical product. Then you have other confidentiality issues as well, which our software can reduce the barriers on. So for example, mental health can be taboo topics in certain communities, STDs and viral infections and stuff like that. And sometimes people don't realise that some of these conditions, how they're related to your particular lifestyle can create an issue in particular communities. But some people don't realise how you may have got those conditions. So for example, the Bengali community in Tower Hamlets has the same amount of people with the liver of cirrhosis condition as the Irish population. Now, if you are someone, you know, why does the Irish population have it? It's probably due to drinking, right? But the Bengali population in Tower Hamlets, they have it because when they used to do mass vaccinations in the 70s and 80s, they used the same needle on like 30 people until the needle went blunt, right? And so if the first person had hep, everyone's getting hep in that queue. So that's how these conditions were spread. And they only start arising a good 25, 30 years later when they start showing up in the population as full-blown liver conditions and stuff like that. That's really sad to hear. So how does the software come into it? If you weren't able to read English and the labels were only in English, you'd have to ask someone for help around those medication content, right? So you'd have to ask your family and friends, and but you may not want them to know what condition you have. And if they did a simple Google search on what that medication is for, they can easily find out what that condition is. Um, So if they were getting a bilingual label, they're less likely to need to ask outside. By providing bilingual labels, we can make sure that their treatment is as confidential as possible. And um, therefore, they don't have to get that information interpreted. That's a great benefit that you're describing there, actually, because I imagine that you're helping people not only with confidentiality, but also in terms of their sort of sense of identity and feeling independent of others when it comes to that confidential information. Do you have some evidence around that? Is this mainly anecdotal? There is evidence online from other studies. But when I speak to people and even family or friends, like, you know, even things like diabetes, people don't want other people to know about it because it's associated with your lifestyle, how you're eating and drinking and so forth everyone wants to have some kind of confidentiality around their healthcare or medical needs especially when they can be seen as taboo and therefore even you know the simplest things like a bilingual label can help improve that um, situation for that person there are lots of reasons people don't adhere to their medicines, but your software's potential to try and inform people at least how they are supposed to take their medicines. Now, Ghalib, you have a fellowship to the NHS Innovation Accelerator. Can you tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. I got the fellowship in April. It was from the NHS Innovation Accelerator, and that's to spread our innovation using the evidence that we have. What was the top line aim of the fellowship for you? For me, it was utilising the fellowship so we can promote the need for accessible medication content for patients with language and communication barriers, but at the same time to reduce barriers 
So one of them being some pharmacists may feel I can't read the label, therefore I don't want to use the bilingual labels, but also integration, integrating it into existing system suppliers is very crucial. So we talk about digital divide and those that may not have access to the internet or smartphones or tablets and so forth. But we want to make sure that pharmacy system suppliers in community pharmacies, secondary care and primary care systems such as EMS and System 1 are able to produce accessible content via their system for patients, both at the point of prescribing, dispensing and discharge. Even though medication is dispensed in the pharmacy, in secondary care, sometimes in most of the cases, only a small amount of medication is dispensed from there. Majority of the medication is dispensed in community pharmacies. So, for example, a pharmacist working in the renal unit in a particular hospital may feel that the patient needs bilingual labels because by the time they go home, they forget how to take the medication, but they don't have any means of supporting that patient apart from using things like Google Translate, maybe which has a very high inaccuracy level. So some places can potentially still use our software, not to produce the labels, but they can still print out that crucial pieces of information on directions of use, the medication information, the warnings and and what the indications are on an A4 sheet of paper and still give it to the patient in case the service is not available in the community pharmacy. Caleb, it's really fascinating talking to you. I suppose one of the questions I do want to go back to is, what would you ideally want to see as far as bilingual labels are concerned? This is a global problem. So if we look at the World Health Organization and Patient Safety Day, this year it was on medication safety and reducing severe avoidable harm. In majority of the countries around the world, pharmacy dispensing practices are not in par with places like the UK or America. And we can all still be learning from each other on how to improve how we're providing crucial information. I personally feel that knowing how to take your medication is more important than the medication itself, because if you take it incorrectly, you're probably just doing harm. There's so many cases of patients ending up in hospital or dying. I gave an example of a paediatrician in the UK where they encountered that barrier where the family went home and forgot how to administer the medication. But, for example, in America, Spanish is the second most spoken language. And take one tablet once daily. Once is once, which is 11 in Spanish. Same spelling, O-N-C-E. Patients go home and take the medication 11 times a day rather than once a day. They've seen this with parents going away who don't speak any English and giving the child medication 11 times a day. But it's not just a problem in the UK, it's worldwide. And as I mentioned, you know, most health and education information is only available in English and then French and Spanish. And after that, content can become quite sketchy. I see. So it's about spreading the word and making sure that this isn't seen as a UK-centric problem, but it's a global problem. It is, it is. And I think our next steps would be going across into the Middle East and India and places like that, spreading our innovation and supporting similar style innovations as well. So we don't have to go in specifically, we can also partner with technology companies and integrate our system like we'd like to do over here in the UK, but in other countries as well. And if you were to meet their health secretary in an elevator, what would you say to them, Ghalib? 
I'll talk to them about language and communication barriers overall and the massive impact not having crucial information has on patients who are more likely to be ill than the general population and how just giving them this one sticker in their own language can make a difference of them not ending up in hospital when you've got such a strain on the healthcare system at the moment. Improving equitable care while reducing inequalities is now a main focus of the NHS. So there's a thing called Core 20 plus 5, and that's reducing, looking at the five most topical conditions and priorities in the healthcare system and looking at the core 20% of the population. And those include some of the most deprived communities in the UK are the Pakistani and Bangladeshi communities. It's really fascinating. Well, Galib, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you. You've talked us through your very long career in pharmacy. You've talked us through how an idea that sparked in your mind led to you collaborating with others and then setting up a whole company and actually that leading to your current fellowship. And I think it's fantastic work that you're doing. And it's an absolute delight to be able to share that with others. So I really want to extend the special thanks to you for talking to me. Thank you, Ghalib. No, thank you very much. And it was uh, my pleasure to be on this podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's Pharmacine podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not tell your friends and colleagues about it? And remember, if you're a pharmacist, membership of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society will support your career, build your skills and represent your interests. Visit www.rfarms.com forward slash RPS hyphen membership to find out more. Look out for the next Pharmacine episode on all good podcast sources. See you next time. (laughs) 